If you would please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Once again, we'll be in verse 6 this evening. And I have the privilege of speaking on the beatitude that reads, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. I want to begin with a few uh, Old Testament scriptures uh, to help me uh, set up where we're going this evening. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 2 and 3. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. And the reality here is that every man everywhere is longing He's chasing after something greater. There's not a man that exists on this planet that is not chasing after something greater in his life. That God has put a longing in our hearts. Some are soul hungry. Some are soul thirsty. Some are dissatisfied. Some walk in great discontent. And some of this can be good. It's a good thing that God has put this longing in our hearts. But the problem is that most seek to fill this longing, to be filled in this pursuit after something in ways other than what God has designed. So that might look like one is longing for greater success. Or one is longing for more material wealth. Or longing after receiving recognition. Or chasing after specific relationships. Or living for the next vacation. And if we are honest with ourselves and we stop and consider that, we will realize many times in our own lives, even as Christians, we have sought to fill this longing that God has placed in our hearts with things other than God Himself. And so this beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, speaking of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is talking about filling this insatiable longing in our lives. Being satisfied in our discontentment. Let me explain that. It is true that as we pursue the things of God, as He puts this desire in our hearts to long after Him, that there will be a sort of discontentment in our life because we never fully Achieve that which He has called us to. This is a gift from God. We are constantly longing after Him in this place. And so we can be satisfied in God while all the while being discontent in our particular place with God at that point in time. We want something greater. We're longing for more. We continue to want to be filled with more of Jesus. And so there's this satisfied discontentment in our lives as we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And this is the key to this verse. And really, I would say the key to... The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of righteousness. But I want to 
touch on some other parts of the verse first. So first off, what is Jesus speaking of when he talks about hunger and thirst? Notice the three other Beatitudes leading up to verse six. Let's read those together, starting in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So to know blessedness, one must be poor in spirit. Acknowledging that we have a spiritual bankruptcy before God. True spiritual poverty causes us then to mourn, to feel the weight of our sin, to feel the corruption of our hearts and mourn over these things. Which then causes, as we heard of wonderfully this morning, meekness within us, a humble submission to God. And so all of these things are these passive aspects of what people are. Those who are blessed are poor in spirit. They mourn over their sins and they are filled with meekness. And so now there is this shift in hungering and thirsting, not anymore from what people are, but what they do. So we move from the passive to the active. And when the Bible here is talking about hungering and thirsting, it's not talking about your eight year old who says, Mom, I'm starving. Okay, they just ate three hours ago. They're not starving. They're not going to die. Okay, Jesus is speaking of these raging pains that are suffering within us because there's true hunger and thirst to the extent of without that substance, very soon it will lead to death. And so he's speaking of a passionate longing for that which sustains life. And without that substance within will surely cause death. And now I want, to, I want to say there's a difference here between being completely empty and this idea of, of longing. We want longing. We do not want emptiness. Think of, uh, think of a gas tank on a car. There's a difference between almost being out of gas and being out of gas. I saw... Oh, he's, oh, he's here. I saw Mark Fields when I was moving on the side of the road. He understood what it meant to be out of gas. <laughs> he understands the difference between empty and longing. That car is longing for more gas because it's almost empty. We want to be longing. We want to know that without more, without being filled with more, that surely it will lead to death. And so Jesus is talking about a satisfaction, a being filled, a being made full. So that in time, this hunger and this thirst will subside. And so really, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but this verse is about our joy. It's about a deep, assuring satisfaction. It's a relief. It's a fulfillment. I have these pains. I have these urgings. I have these longings and they're being fulfilled. What joy that creates within us. And this is what he speaks of when he says they shall be satisfied. They shall experience eternal joy. And so what of this righteousness that he speaks of? I want to hit on two aspects of 
righteousness. The first is the righteousness of Christ. And the second is the righteousness of mercy, purity, and peace. So let's begin with the righteousness of Christ. When we speak of Christ's righteousness, we are, we are speaking of Jesus having perfectly fulfilled all that God has commanded. That Jesus came, as we read in the Scriptures, not to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And He did so in perfect obedience. And so Christ is perfectly righteous. He has a perfect standing before the Father. And the great blessing of being a Christian is that that righteousness from Christ is then placed on us. This is called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Imputed, meaning that which was placed upon us. That which was credited to our account. So then as God looks upon us, He does not see us, He sees Christ. And this in itself is deeply satisfying. That when I sin, that when I transgress, if Christ's righteousness has been placed upon me, God does not look on me in dissatisfaction. He does not look on me angry and upset with what I have done. He looks on me deeply rejoicing in who I am because of who Christ Jesus is and what He has accomplished on my behalf. That is a great reality of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. That we need not walk with the burden of sin on our backs and have this idea that God is frowning upon us but knowing that He is delighting in us because of Christ's work for us. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, he writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And then in verse 20 of chapter 3, he writes, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And so Paul is very clear that we are all under sin. So the same righteousness that was imputed to us in Christ, we also, in our birth, have a sin imputed to us by Adam. Since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, on throughout the history of mankind, every man who has been born everywhere has an imputed sin because Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And so it is impossible, the Apostle Paul is saying, that man would be declared righteous by being able to fulfill the law. And in Romans 1, he sort of makes this argument of he would if he could, but he can't, so he won't. That's sort of his, his way of reasoning through that. Is man would seek to fulfill the law if he was able to because we have this natural inclination toward law, toward wanting to do Right or wrong, having black and white. And he says, we would if we could, but there's no way that we can because of this sin that has been placed upon us. So we won't. And so that puts us in a place where we need good news in the midst of all this. And he goes on in Romans 3, verses 21 through 22, and he says, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
And so he says we cannot fulfill that righteousness, but to all who believe in Christ, that righteousness has already been fulfilled. And then in verse 28, he says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing or apart from works of the law. I think it's important here that I help us understand the difference between justification and sanctification. And we talk about these things often here, but I want to make sure we're all clear on this because there is a very important difference. Our only hope in progress, in our progressive sanctification or growing in the likeness of Jesus is that we already have a right standing with Jesus by faith alone. One who does not have a right standing with Jesus cannot be made more into the likeness of Jesus. There's no desire. There's no longing. There's no want. And so... We rejoice in justification. That at some point in our lives, God calls us out of darkness into light and declares us innocent. And He gives us a right standing. Because now He has placed upon us the righteousness of Christ. And so when Paul was presenting this, He knew the argument would come. Well, if that's the case, shall we now sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free grace of righteousness reign in this life by one man, Jesus Christ. And when Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, then and only then are we freed from the bondage and slavery to sin. And we are now freed up to make war on our sin and to fight to walk in holiness. To walk and fight for purity. Which is the process Of sanctification. And the great reformer John Owen said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And so we're justified, we're made right before God. This one point in time when we were once in darkness, and all of a sudden we see, we're given new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new desires and new longings to pursue. And from there we enter the process of sanctification, a progressive movement toward greater Christ-likeness, gaining a practical righteousness because we now have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so we're talking about two different things here. Declared righteous by God because of Christ and now pursuing a righteousness because we have been justified. And we'll talk more of that in a minute. So this is the this is the beauty of salvation. We're not just saved from our sin. You know, when we when we talk a lot about the gospel we typically talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And that is glorious in and of itself. But often we leave off what is part of that and is just as great and glorious. We're not just saved from our sins because of Christ dying on the cross on our behalf, but we are also granted a righteousness not our own. So the gospel is not just Christ died for my sins. The gospel is also in doing so. He has given me his righteousness and I am now freed up to live out of the bondage of sin. 
And this righteousness now frees me up to walk in and toward holiness. And that leads us to pursuing a righteousness of mercy and purity and peace. And that's the second righteousness I want to talk about. The righteousness of mercy, purity and peace. And I really believe this is the righteousness that Jesus is referring to in this verse. Now, this very much the same is a righteousness that is given to us. It's not something that we achieve. It's not something that we muster in our own strength and go out and do. Notice that he doesn't say that the blessed achieve righteousness. He says that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. To believe like the Pharisees that you possess a righteousness in and of your own is fatal. And to know yourself to be in want of a righteousness is not enough. Jesus says we're to feel the want of it and to have a passionate and persistent longing after it. And we cannot walk in the righteousness of mercy and purity and peace if we have not obtained this imputed righteousness of Christ. And once we have that, we will then hunger and thirst for righteousness. We will hunger and thirst for mercy and purity and peace. And it's both and, and it has to be in that order. Without Christ's righteousness, we will not long for the righteousness of mercy and purity and peace. I think the structure of the Beatitudes will help us in this. The first four, I think Russ mentioned this morning, broken, grieving, a broken, grieving, meek person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Those are the first four. The second four, a merciful, pure peacemaker who is persecuted for his righteousness. So if hungering If we're hungering in verse 6 because we need to be filled or satisfied and persecuted in verse 10 because we are now full, we should conclude that righteousness is that with which we have been filled. Mercy, purity, peacemaking. That's where I get that from. Those next four in the Beatitudes. Look over at at verse 20 of chapter 5. Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from there, he followed with six illustrations of how our righteousness must surpass that of the meticulous law keepers of that day. Let's walk through them. Verses 21 through 26. He says, do not kill and do not hold anger. Seek after peace. Verses 27 through 30. Do not commit adultery and do not look on a person with lust in your eyes. Verse 31 and 32. Do not divorce because of a legal provision that's given to you in the Old Testament, but keep your covenant commitments. Verse 33 through 37. Keep your oaths and be a person who doesn't even need to make an oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. 38 through 42. Don't poke out an eye because yours was poked out. And turn the other cheek and return good for evil. In verses 43 through 48. Love your neighbor and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's talking about something far greater than one can muster in their own strength. Far greater than that which is simply external and that which we can see someone trying to accomplish on their own behalf. And this is the righteousness that Jesus says that the true believer hungers and thirsts for. These are vital signs for Christians. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this of verse 6, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself in the whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If to you this verse is one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain that you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. Do you long for? Does your soul passionately desire to be filled with mercy and purity and peace? Do you want to love your enemies? Do you want to have a desire to pray for those who persecute you? Do you want to keep the covenant bonds of your marriage? Do you instinctively want in all of your heart when you're slapped on one side to turn the other cheek and repay evil with good? Are these the longings of your heart? Does your soul delight in the righteousness of Christ provided on your behalf that you are now freed up to fight against sin and to long for these things with passionate zeal? If not, here's what happens. We begin to create a righteousness of our own. We don't walk in Christ's righteousness we begin to walk in a man-made righteousness. Let me give you a few examples. My Sunday school class did these a few weeks ago. If we're not walking in the righteousness of Christ, there's only one other option, and that is to create our own. And they look different for all of us, depending on who we are. So for some, it might be Job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. For some, it's family or parenting righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids in the grocery store. It may be theological righteousness. I have good theology. Therefore, God prefers me over those who have bad theology. It may be an intellectual righteousness. I am better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. It might be schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. We may seek to find our righteousness in our flexibility. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed, I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. It could be mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged in the way that everyone else should. Perhaps it's legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't date girls who do too. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days, and I am. Perhaps it's financial righteousness. I manage money wisely. I stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who cannot control their spending. It could be political righteousness. If you really love God, you will vote for my candidate. It may be tolerance 
righteousness. I am open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a whole lot like Jesus in that way. Okay, so you get the point. And we could all probably think of righteousness that we have sought to create of our own in our lives. That we've sought to build up and stand on. To look at and to say, God will be pleased in me as He looks on me because of this aspect of my life. But this is not Christianity. It's religion, but it's not Christianity. It's works based and it's creating something to give the self a sense of personal credibility. Finding our worth in something other than the righteousness of Christ. So now I'm filling my longing with something other than the righteousness that Christ provides. And it's never filled. I'm always longing. Because it's contrary to that which God has called righteousness. Now look, I I think that most Americans who call themselves Christians aren't actually Christians because they don't actually know and believe and walk in the true gospel. Most Americans have bought an alternative gospel. And in our context here in the South, in the Bible Belt, The gospel that most people have bought into is the gospel of morality. And the gospel of morality is false religion. It says, pull yourself up, do what's right, don't do what's wrong, and now I'm walking in self-righteousness. And it comes out in the way that we talk often. Parents, when your children get older and something happens in their life, the gospel of morality is the tendency to say to them, you know the difference between right and wrong. For all of us, It is much easier for us to look at a situation, to draw a hard line and say, this is right, this is wrong. And if I don't have a clear distinction, I better make a rule about it. And this is the false gospel of morality. If a person is good enough and if they try hard enough to be a moral person, then they're walking rightly with God. And sure, that includes Church attendance and Bible study attendance and and praying over your dinner at the restaurant so other people can see you. It includes all of these things because all of these things are what builds that sense of self-righteousness. I'm doing the right things, therefore God must love me. And this gospel of morality and self-righteousness is everywhere. Just look at a few church signs and the bumper stickers people have on their cars and you'll see it. Turn or burn. What does that say? We've got it going on. You're going to burn in hell. Have a good time. Or open every Sunday. (laughs) We're here Why aren't you? God doesn't believe in atheists. Nothing says, let me love you and build a relationship with you like God doesn't believe in you. Or how about your fish eating the fish that has legs on it? 
Okay, this is not Christianity. This is a really lame hobby. Look, flip over to Matthew 23. And go to verse 23. Jesus here is giving some of the harshest words in Scripture. Speaking with the scribes and Pharisees. Starting in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is the great sin of legalism. This is the great tendency of our hearts to move toward creating laws Creating an atmosphere in which we build our own foundation of self-righteousness to where we can stand in lofty posts and point our fingers and declare ourselves to be more righteous than others. When in the end, Jesus says, Woe to you, you hypocrites. You might tithe out of your spice rack. You might... Clean the outside of your cup and the outside of your plate. But in your heart, you are defiled. And so today that looks like I'm at church every Sunday. I'm at every Bible study. I'm at every prayer group. I'm at every small group. But I have absolutely no hunger and no thirst for righteousness. It's a really lame hobby. And look, some of you have been beat up your whole entire life with legalism. I understand that and I hurt for you in that because it takes a long time to break free of that and see the beauty of the gospel. And some of you may have questions and you keep coming back and you don't know why, but you're drawn to keep coming and coming and hearing and you know you don't believe it yet. But it's, it's probably too late. You're going to eventually. Okay, if you have this desire and this longing to continue to be called, to be here, to listen, to ask questions, God is at work in your life. 
So for those two groups, I'm not necessarily talking to you. But if you think by somehow being here each week will save you, you're better off staying home and mowing the lawn instead. Because being here for you is very, very dangerous. Look at Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 22, chapter 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Stop living on a borrowed faith. Stop living on the faith that you've borrowed your whole life from your parents, from your neighbors, from your friends who are all a part of a church. And inspect your heart. Because when you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I never missed a Sunday. I had a small group in my home. I taught Sunday school. I put food in the food pantry. The Lord will promptly say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because there was no longing. There was no hunger. There was no thirst for righteousness. When the reformer Martin Luther was was teaching about our freedom from legalism, when he was teaching on our justification by faith apart from works of the law, Someone came to him and said, if this is true, a person can simply live as he pleased. And Martin Luther responded, indeed. Now, what pleases you? That's the heart of the matter. We will all live as we please. What pleases you? You see, this is first and foremost about desire. If we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we will have a desire for what God calls us to. We will have a longing to be a part of community. We will have a longing to be in the Word of God. We have a longing to be worshiping on our own, in our family, with the body of Christ We will have an insatiable longing that we want to be filled because we know that these are things that God has given us. These are a means to pursue our joy. That's what he's saying here. They will be satisfied. Not because of a bondage to legalism. Not because of the worldliness of complete and total license. Not treadmilling ourselves to death. Just going through the motions with drudgery. But hunger and thirst and longing. And the hunger and thirst of your life cannot be satisfied by anything that this world has to offer. It is the constant beckoning of God to remember that you were made for another world. You were made for God. And as you hunger and as you thirst, you will be filled with a deep, assuring satisfaction, delighting in the greatest worth, namely Jesus Christ. And this is the fulfillment of our chief end. This is the fulfillment of our purpose in this life. To glorify God. How do we do it? Enjoy Him forever. 
we enjoy God when we hunger and thirst for the righteousness which He provides us. And in the end, we are satisfied if we hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we crave the grace to be merciful. If we have yearned for purity in our thoughts and in our feelings and in our actions. If we've passionately desired peace in our relationships and in the world around us. And if we have a solid footing and we find our worth in the righteousness of Christ. This is what offers and only what offers deep, lasting satisfaction for our souls. Not finding delight in the world. Not religious duty. And not just a vertical relationship with God. Very much a horizontal working out with others this righteousness which He is brewing within us. Deep, lasting satisfaction is a gift from God. And it shows in a person whose passion in this life is to know Him. And in his struggle to be like Him in this world. It's knowing God and struggling and striving to be like God. And so don't settle for little half-hearted satisfactions in this life like being a millionaire or being the CEO of your company or a celebrity, or whatever. These are half-hearted pursuits that in the end amount to nothing. But pray earnestly. Beg God that He would give you a passion. That He would give you a hunger and a thirst to rest in the righteousness of Christ and to do great works in the world around us, that they would see what we do and that they too would long for what we have and give glory to the Father that is in heaven. For some people, for some of us, the grass everywhere looks greener. Because we're not devoted to the central pursuit of righteousness, but the pursuit of other lesser things. So let us make it our prayer. Let us make it our eager longing in this life to hunger and thirst for righteousness in our souls in our relationships, in our community, and in this world. May it be said of us that our longings drove us to pursue mercy and peace and purity in our lives. Not because we think we can do them on our own, but because we rest fully in the righteousness that Christ provides. And we know there is no other hope in this life. And there surely is nothing that grants us joy in the life to come other than this. Let this be said of us. Let us pray for us. Pray for this in our lives. Let us hunger and thirst for righteousness that we would be satisfied. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful, Lord, that You are the giver of life. That You are the giver of hunger. You are the giver of thirst. You are the giver of a longing that will not be fully filled until we stand before You and are declared righteous, not because of any work of our own, but because Christ has accomplished a righteousness on our behalf. 
Father, help the weight of that settle on us tonight. Move our hearts to be filled with joy in knowing that we are saved from our sins and that we are granted the righteousness of Christ. Create in us a greater longing, a greater hunger, a greater thirst for the righteousness that You grant to us that we might pursue with joy. Peace and purity and mercy. Father, let these be the longings of our heart that we might live out all that you have called us to. Because we know, Father, after many trials, after many failures, that seeking to pursue these things in our own strength, in our own way, is always, 100% of the time, complete and total failure. But we know, God, that You are jealous for Your glory. And in that, we pray that You would fill Your people with this desire. That You would give us a great passion to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That through us and in us and by us, that others would look on what You are doing in our lives and give glory to You. Because we have joy that surpasses all understanding in this life. Father, help us to flee the temporal, half-hearted desires of this world and to cling fully to the Gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. We're grateful that You have given us this truth to cling to. Help us to search our hearts. Father, for anyone here who is in the bondage of legalism in their life, I pray, Father, that even tonight that You would break them free of the shackles of this law and that You would help them to live freely in the Gospel of grace. I pray, Father, for any here who may be walking on the treadmill, that You would help them to get off and make progress. I pray for those who may be here and have for year after year after year given their lives to doing things and pursuing after something, but never hungering and thirsting. I pray for those here tonight who know that they do not believe. I pray, Father, that You would give them a desire to repent and believe the Gospel and to walk in newness of life with Christ Jesus forevermore. Lord, You are gracious. You are glorious. And You are kind. And we pray with thankful hearts. We sing with passionate joy in what You have accomplished for us on our behalf. We thank You. In Christ's name, Amen.